Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 38th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. Before we get started, I've got a few updates for you. Our last Making Energy Work webinar is just around the corner. Thank you to all those who have tuned in so far as we just wrapped up our ninth webinar as part of the series. Actually, we just featured our guests you'll hear from today on our most recent webinar. So if you enjoy this episode and want to hear more about the topic, visit makingenergywork.com to find the recording. And our last webinar will take place on December 3rd, featuring Amory Levins from Rocky Mountain Institute in a conversation with Ivan Erlob of NCSEA. I, for one, am looking forward to this conversation with these two energy visionaries who will provide us some insight into their energy crystal balls. To register for that webinar, you can also visit makingenergywork.com. Can you believe there are only six weeks left in 2020? This year has simultaneously felt like the longest on record, but somehow has managed to fly by at the same time. The pandemic has definitely been tough for us all, but hasn't prevented NCSEA from seeing some clean energy wins here in the state this year, including a settlement with Duke Energy over a new financial compensation structure for residential solar customers, a settlement for a tariffed on-bill financing pilot designed for low and moderate income customers, and significant movement forward on multiple stakeholder conversations taking place under the state's clean energy plan. Oh yeah, and of course, we hit a full successful year of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast with over 20,000 downloads from listeners like you all over the state of North Carolina, the country, and the world. So if you enjoy what we're doing with the podcast and want to support continued efforts to expand opportunities in the clean energy space for all North Carolinians in 2021, We're asking for your support in our Clean Energy Works for All fundraising campaign. Any level of support is greatly appreciated and helps enable us to produce content just like this. To donate, visit energync.org. And before we get started, today's episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is proudly supported by Larry's Coffee, who would like to share that their Rockin' Holiday Blend is now available Visit larryscoffee.com to explore and find out more. All right, so for those tuning in, you've probably already consumed hours and hours of cable news predicting and digesting the results of this year's historic elections. Well, we're here today to provide a little bit different spin on the hours of analysis you've already waded through. We're talking North Carolina election results and specifically what they mean to clean energy here in the state. We're coming at you just a little bit over two weeks removed from this year's election, and man, the ink has just dried on some of the results here in the state, so these takes are about as fresh as they get. While clean energy wasn't explicitly listed on the ballots, many of the candidates made it a mainstay issue of their campaign this year. So without further ado, let's get into it. Clean energy. And today on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, we are lucky enough 
to have two of NCSEA's lobbyists and close friends. Uh, one has been on the podcast before, and you'll probably recognize her voice. But before I mention who it is, I'll give you a quick introduction. With over two decades of government campaign and nonprofit experience in Raleigh and Washington, D.C., this person has worked for elected officials at the highest leadership levels in the U.S. Congress and NC General Assembly, and now serves as the principal of Robinson Consulting Group. Julie Robinson, welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me back on. And for the first time on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, this esteemed guest is a partner at Kairos Government Affairs. Prior to that, she served as NCSEA's Director of Government Affairs and has been a lobbyist for NCSEA for over eight years. Betsy McCorkle, partner at Kairos Government Affairs, welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Thanks for having me. Hi, Matt. Hi, Julie. Well, it's great to have you both here on the podcast. I know uh, you guys get to talk to me on a regular basis, almost on a weekly basis, as we work on and coordinate NCSEA's lobbying and advocacy strategies. And now we're peeling back the covers a little bit and giving our listeners an insider perspective of uh, a little bit of our advocacy and lobbying work here at NCSEA and a little bit of a uh, debrief of the recent elections. So let's go ahead and get started in today's episode. I'm curious, uh, just to, to start with the top of the ticket here in North Carolina, um, can, can you give us just an update on the governor's race, attorney general, and other statewide offices? We'll start with Julie on this one. So just starting um, at the top of the ticket, um, we were one of the very few states this year to have both a governor's race and a U.S. Senate race. So, uh, you know, North Carolina over the last eight or 10 years has been kind of in the national spotlight in terms of um, hot races. And uh, 2020 has definitely lived up uh, to that to that calling. Um Unlike 2016, when Governor Roy Cooper uh, first won, really a squeaker, only uh, with an advantage of like 10,000 votes, um, you know, this year was was quite different. And um, I say this with a little bit of uh, North Carolina native humor, um, you know, kind of a North Carolina version of a landslide, if that is such a thing, with uh three and a half percent, you know, advantage over our uh, current lieutenant governor. Um, so Governor Cooper was reelected by close to 250,000 votes um, of all of those statewide races. Um, that has been uh, probably the, the widest margin that we've seen so far. Um, but Betsy and I will, I'm sure, caveat um, our comments several times during this podcast that votes are still being tallied and and final numbers uh, in a few of those close races across the state. So, um, you know, what we say right now may not be true 20 minutes from now. Um, So the governor's race was not um, very close. Um, Governor Cooper won re-election. The attorney general's race um, that had uh, current AG Josh Stein, Democrat, running for re-election against Jim O'Neill, 
who is the uh, Forsyth County DA currently. Um, I think that race uh, was a lot closer than than most expected. Um, Right now, uh, Attorney General Josh Stein has about a 14,000 vote lead, and I think most are expecting him to win re-election as well. Um, Another extremely close race um, that's uh, getting a lot of attention is the North Carolina Supreme Court um, Chief Justice um, race, which uh, had current Chief Justice um, Beasley running against uh, current uh, Supreme Court Justice Paul Newby, Newby being the Republican um, and uh, Beasley being the Democrat. Um, that, that, that vote count has been flipping back and forth over the last couple of days. And uh, last time I checked, um, it looked like Paul Newby was up by about 230 votes. Um, again, you know, this Supreme Court race is probably going to be the quintessential example of every vote matters, every vote counts um, in that race. You know, nearly 5.4 million North Carolinians voted in that race. And to have it separated by, you know, 200, 250 votes, um, obviously that'll more than likely go to a recount. But again, just drives home the message that these elections are so very important and every vote matters. Um, And then at the federal level, two other races I'll just mention briefly. Um, President Trump was declared the the winner for North Carolina on uh, this past Friday. Um, Didn't make much difference in the uh, Electoral College number um, following uh, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, and a few other states that that went into Biden's column. Um, But Trump did carry North Carolina. And in the U.S. Senate race, Um, Senator Tom Tillis, uh, who has been um, a longstanding supporter of clean energy, I'll mention, um, also won re-election for another six-year term in the the U.S. Senate race. I'll I'll add, Julie, that that U.S. Senate race between uh, Senator Tillis and Cal Cunningham, I believe, is being recorded as the most expensive U.S. Senate race in the country this year. I'm sure once you tabulate the new numbers that are going to go into Georgia for the two runoffs, that will change. But as of right now, um, that was one of the um, most closely watched and heavily financed uh, races in, in the country this year. So you bring up um, an interesting point with these these federal races um, and, and a question that I've been asked a number of times over the past week or so. Uh, so, so North Carolina is interesting in the fact that we lean towards uh, President Trump and also uh, voted in Tom Tillis as well, but yet voted for a Democratic governor in Governor Roy Cooper. Do you have any sort of insights as to why North Carolina had this sort of split ticket across the, the top of the ballots here? Just being a native of North Carolina and, you know, seeing how um, our state has changed dramatically over the years. Um, You know, a lot of um, campaign political consultants, campaign staffers have um, remarked over the last few weeks, last few months, that North Carolina is the purplest of purple states, the swingiest 
of swing states. And I think just the, you know, changing um, voter registration dynamics of North Carolina, the urban rural issues in North Carolina, I think is going to continue to have North Carolina, you know, not only in, you know, a lot of attention paid in state, but also on the national stage. Um, And I think it really does come down to, you know, who the candidates are. Um, You know, people in North Carolina, you know, can vote for President Trump, Senator Tillis and reelect Governor Cooper, you know, as we saw just recently. Um, And I think, you know, in connecting that dot one step further, you know, clean energy is a perfect example of issues that, you know, cut both ways, you know, have broad bipartisan or nonpartisan support um, amongst Republicans, Democrats, unaffiliated. Um, so I think there's a lot of overlap between the elected leaders that our state elects and also how, you know, North Carolinians and our elected officials look at issues like clean energy and economic development opportunities for the state. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And um, I got the opportunity this campaign season to, to volunteer for a few clean energy champions um, show up on their on their campaigns and had a chance to talk to voters at the polls. And it was it was amazing the diversity that you saw amongst what what people plan to do. Sometimes they would open up and tell you. And I, I met a gentleman who appeared to be um, very much a Republican, very excited about the Republican ticket, um, but was going to vote against President Trump because um, he was dealing with an immigration issue that had to do with his wife, and he didn't like the way that was going. Um, but you know, had planned to to vote down ballot for Republicans. Um, others who were lifelong Democrats and um, absolutely planned to support Roy Cooper, um, but were also really inspired by some of President Trump's messaging. Um, so there were a couple of days at the polls that my my head was really spinning, um, but it just shows that um, this is a, a an electorate that's very purple, um, that, that does appear to look at candidates um, individually and, and not be a, a straight ticket type of state. Given that, you know, Governor Cooper signed Executive Order 80 uh, in his first term leading to the clean energy plan and has since been elected to a second term, are we expecting further action under the clean energy plan under the second term or potentially additional executive orders or actions moving the needle forward on clean energy? And I'll uh, start with Julie on this one. I think first I would just really like to, you know, give a big round of applause for Governor Cooper and his administration and especially um, Department of Environmental Quality, DEQ Secretary Michael Regan and his staff um, for just taking such proactive, um, well thought out action over the last you know couple of years um, that started obviously with Executive Order 80 um, and then the Clean Energy Plan bringing stakeholders, you know, a very diverse, very large group of stakeholders together to to talk about clean energy opportunities in North Carolina. I think what comes next um, is up to really the stakeholders. And I think the fact that, you know, it is a diverse group of people bringing different perspectives, 
um, you know, small customer, large energy customers, businesses, environmental groups, clean energy businesses, clean energy organizations like NCSEA and NCCBA um, across the gamut. Um, you know, just that diverse set of voices in this process, I think, is a first very good step to ensure more action can happen um, with the governor and his administration, but also probably even more important um, with Democratic and Republican legislators right down the street in Raleigh, um, because that's really where the, the rubber is going to meet the road um, in the next few months in determining, you know, what's possible in 2021. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And um, lots of lots of praise uh, for the governor's office. Um, as Julie mentioned, lots of praise for the stakeholders. And um, what I think has become unique about the energy space is that the stakeholders really are coming to the table with realistic ideas and more importantly, realistic concessions. Um, I work in a number of industries, um, not just energy, and we see stakeholder groups all the time. And a lot of times they seem like everybody brings their ideas to the table and when no one can agree, everyone goes back to their corner and advocates you know, business as usual and truly nothing got solved, but everybody got to say that you know, they went to the stakeholder meeting. And in the, in the years that Julie and I have been doing this, um, I think in the early days, that was probably true. Um, there was a lot of, yes, we'll pretend to talk to each other and then we'll all run to our corners. But I don't see that happening anymore. Um, I'm constantly on calls where I hear about you know, a customer group being on a call with an environmental group. I hear about a utility talking to a clean energy group. And they're, they're real conversations with real ideas and real solutions. Um, so whether that comes from, you know, the next step, is it going to be legislation? Is it going to be an executive order? Um, I don't think we have that crystal ball yet. But I think, I think Julie and I are, are both hopeful um, that we've got the right people at table, the right conversations are happening. And the, the ingredients are there for progress. Um, whether or not it all comes together into, a, you know, a, a tasty meal, we, we don't know yet. But um, it, I'm inspired by by the, the progress we're making and the people that are at the table. Yeah. And and since Julie mentioned Secretary Regan, I, I wanted to give him a shout out as well, since we have featured him in the past on the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast just about a year ago. So if you're interested to hear a little bit more about the work of DEQ and the Cooper administration, I'd encourage you to go back and check out that episode. And then Betsy, you know, it's really reassuring to hear that all of these parties are coming to the table with a real interest in um, having, you know, substantial and concrete conversations, which makes me very hopeful for what, you know, 2021 has to bring here. So let's let's move down ballot a little bit further and, and talk about the General Assembly as a whole. Um, can you give us an update on where the cards lie in terms of party control of both houses? Um, do Republicans remain in control of both the House and the Senate? And were there any major shifts in total number of seats? So I'll start with Betsy on this one. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit ironic that things look a lot like they did uh, before the election. Um, there was a tremendous amount of, of money spent um, attempting to flip seats, also obviously to defend seats. Um, there was a fair amount of discussion about um, the Democrats um, taking control of one or both chambers. 
Um, Republicans fought hard against that. Um, and we ended up with um, the Democrats gaining one seat in uh, a net of one seat uh, in the North Carolina Senate. So they currently have 22 seats um, to the Republicans having uh, 28. So a little bit further from that veto-proof majority that you hear a lot about, um, but um, still a solid majority. Um, we expect the committee leadership to stay uh, across the board with Republicans in the Senate. Um, there is, we do have a new lieutenant governor in the state uh, in Republican Mark Robinson. Um, so he will preside over the Senate and um, would vote in the event of a tie. Um, which we don't expect a lot of given the 28-22 split. Um, but uh, we have not spent uh, a great deal of time with him talking about clean energy. So that's something that I know NCSEA and other groups um, look forward to doing um, to hopefully appeal to um, the economic development aspects as well as the market competition opportunities um, in, in that office. Um, and then looking at the North Carolina House, um, again, um, the majority did stay with the Republicans, and they actually increased their majority um, by a net of four seats. And so they were uh, holding 65 of the seats, and they now hold 69 uh, to the Democrats, 51. So again, not the threshold uh, to be called a supermajority, giving them the ability, giving Republicans the ability to override a veto from the governor, but again, a solid and appears to be growing majority for the Republicans in the House. Um, which is what is especially unique about this election is that whoever controls the House or the Senate um, moving into 2021 will also be in charge of redistricting. So when the new census numbers come back um, from the federal government, the Republicans will effectively be in charge of drawing new maps for themselves in the House and Senate, as well as our congressional maps. Uh, I'm sure many listeners have followed along to the, to the number of lawsuits um, that we've seen in North Carolina over the last 10 years since the last maps were drawn. Um, they've changed significantly in that time. Um, there's been some conversation um, with Senator Berger, uh, Republican leader in the Senate, uh, President Pro Tem rather, um, and the Speaker um, kind of alluding to uh, following this last process where we ended up with our current maps um, that was incredibly transparent and incredibly bipartisan. Um, so we expect that to be uh, the norm going forward. I think the question now becomes, um, what's the starting point uh, for the maps? Um, will they hire a consultant to come in and make an initial recommendation? Um, those are details that we, we expect to see um, really probably in the next few weeks or months. Betsy, since you mentioned that the makeup of the General Assembly looks, you know, by and large, pretty similar to how it has over the, the past few years, do you anticipate, you know, uh, any shift in the approach towards clean energy for the General Assembly as a whole moving forward? Or I know we've seen a lot of, you know, positive movement for clean energy with the, the makeup of the General Assembly as is. Can we expect that to be the same moving forward as well? I, I think things have definitely gotten more positive for clean energy. I think we've moved further in, in that direction. Um, a number of factors have played into that. I think um, there was a a lot of attention given to an, an energy bill pushed mostly by uh, Duke Energy last year that um, brought more people to the energy table than have before. If you're a House member and you don't sit on the energy committee, um, you, you you don't have to necessarily get involved unless there's a floor vote. Um, and that 
bill last year did make it onto the floor, which got a lot more people engaged, which ended up being a, a good thing. It gave um, NCSEA and a lot of other organizations the opportunity to do a lot of education, to share a lot of information. So I think we've brought more people into the fold, um, at least that are curious about clean energy and the role that it plays in the overall economy. Um, I like to talk about the clean energy majority. It's easy on when you're talking about politics, talk about Republicans and Democrats. And, you know, for close to 10 years, um, you know, Julie and I have been working together on trying to build a clean energy majority. And I think we're, we're closer to the, that than we were before the election. Um, it's also um, important to, to point out a few key retirements um, that really had nothing to do with the election, just um, individuals choosing to pursue other things. Uh, we lost a great champion in Representative Chuck McGrady uh, in the House who had uh, really had um, a great skill set in working with his colleagues and, and helping to uh, navigate clean energy issues, on really all issues. Um, but we really loved when he got engaged on our issues. Um, and then the retirement of Senator, Senator Harry Brown in the Senate, um, who has been a longtime opponent of clean energy and has supported and introduced a number of pieces of legislation seeking to um, kind of pull back on clean energy in the state or make it more difficult to develop. Um, so we expect that his retirement should overall move the Senate in a, in a more uh, friendly direction for clean energy. You mentioned the, this clean energy majority, and I think that's a it's a real testament to the work of yourself and, and Julie and the rest of the, the lobbying team in building bipartisan support for, for clean energy and elevating the profiles of clean energy champions in the General Assembly. So I'd, I'd like to talk about a few of those as well. Um, you know, thinking about some of our, our champions in the past, like Representative John Zoka and Senator Bob Steinberg, you know, how did they fare in this most recent election? Sure. So both of those races, um, so as you mentioned, Representative Soka and Senator Steinberg are both Republicans. Um, both of those races were heavily targeted um, by Democrats, um, basically needing to flip those seats if they were going to take a majority in either chamber. Um, Representative Soka's race was a lot closer. I think he ended up winning um, by about 700 votes. Um, and Senator Steinberg um, won by thousands of votes, um, almost 10 percentage points in his district, um, despite, I think, close to $2 million um, being spent um, on that race. But again, he's a, he's a great candidate, and he's also in a, in a great district um, for a Republican. So I think with those things combined, he has a lot of name ID, who's a former House member from that area. Um, so they both will be uh, coming back in 2021. Um, they will be coming back with more seniority, uh, more leadership experience, and um, we expect that to, to be helpful um, for clean energy. There's also a couple of returning members in the House um, that lost um, re-election in 2018, um, but won the rematch um, this year and will be returning, and that's uh, Representative John Bradford and Representative Sam Watford. Um, have both been clean energy champions, have been recognized by NCSEA with awards in the past. And so we're really excited to have them back and get them re-engaged um, in the work that we've been doing since they left the General Assembly. A priority of, of NCSEAs um, over the past few years has been 
elevating the profile of clean energy for new candidates um, and newly elected officials within the General Assembly. Um, as an example, this past year, we hosted a virtual candidate education event where I believe we had 70 to 80 um different uh, legislators or uh, potential legislators on the line where we, we spoke in, in great detail and length about clean energy here within the state. So I'm, I'm curious to, from, from y'all's perspective, um, if we have any notable new faces in the General Assembly, um, as, you know, specifically as that pertains to the issue of uh, clean energy. We don't see as many um, freshman legislators uh, coming in to the, the legislature in 2021 as we did um, back in 2012, which had kind of the, the record-breaking high number. Um, but there still are going to be a lot of new faces, um, both Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate. And, um, you know, Betsy mentioned a couple of returning House Republicans um, that were out the last two years that will be back um, in Representative Bradford and Representative Watford. Um, we also have a couple of incoming um, freshman Democrats over in the Senate um, chamber that, that I'm really um, excited to, to be working with and working on these issues with. Um, up in the Asheville area, um, Julie Mayfield won the open Senate seat um, that Senator Terry Van Dyne had, had held the last few years. Um, many of NCSA's members and listeners to this podcast may have worked with Julie Mayfield over the years as part of her work with Mountain True up in the mountains. So clearly, you know, she has... Uh, a built-in, very high-level uh, knowledge level of clean energy and environmental issues. Um, so she's definitely, you know, one on our list that we expect to to make a big difference, you know, from day one. Um, and also, um, incoming freshman senator Sarah Crawford. Um, her district is part of Wake County and Franklin County here in the Triangle. Um, she also has done a lot of work on clean energy issues over the years. And, um, you know, we're, we're looking forward to, to working with her as well. Um, and I think, you know, at a, at a higher level over the last few years, um, we've seen more former county commissioners and school board members at the local level that have run for the state legislature. Um, Representative Larry Strickland is an example of that. He served on the school board for, I think, 18 years before he ran for the legislature back in 2016. A lot of the current legislators with that kind of county commission, city council, school school board experience have seen the benefits, the economic benefits of clean energy in those previous roles. Um, so they come to the legislature with, you know, firsthand knowledge of the economic benefits of clean energy. And, you know, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, um, they're, they're perfect partners for us to work with on these clean energy issues. And, and I think we'll see that trend continuing uh, going into to next year's long session. It was also interesting to see this campaign season, um, the number of both Republicans and Democrats that were including energy messaging in their campaign materials, oftentimes clean energy messaging. Um, but knowing that we have um, COVID, healthcare, education, economy, 
just really big ticket items kind of in front of us right now. The fact that these candidates were still choosing to put energy uh, on their campaign platform. And um, from what we could tell in a very um, pro-market, um, pro-clean energy way. Um, so if you're willing to run on that, um, chances are you're willing uh, to come in and, and get involved on day one. And um, we're really looking forward to those opportunities. And, and to your point, Betsy, um, our partners over at Conservatives for Clean Energy conduct an annual poll every year um, on energy and clean energy related issues. And in the most recent poll, uh, it pointed to overwhelmingly bipartisan support for clean energy uh, here in the state and more of a mixed bag towards you know fossil fuels. So um, we, we actually did host a Making Energy Work webinar where we partnered with Conservatives for Clean Energy to dive into the details of that poll. Uh, so I'd encourage you to check that out if you have not yet. So taking a step back and looking at the elections as a whole, how do you think North Carolina came out in terms of our ability to continue to advance clean energy in 2021 and beyond? And I'll start with Betsy on this one. Sure. I, I'm incredibly optimistic. Um, I think the, the new faces that have, are going to be joining us um, either are, are already um, well-versed in this issue and have done work in the past or um, just based on their background and what we know about them so far, we believe them to be open-minded. Um, so it's always about kind of, you know, moving the pendulum, moving the needle. Um, are we moving to a place where um, people see these issues more favorably? Obviously, prices continue to come down. Adoption continues to go up. Um, when I first wor started working in the space, uh, nobody knew anybody who had solar. And if they did, um, the conversation was always about how expensive it was. Um, now, um, you know, it's, it's amazing when I'm, I'm places that have nothing to do with energy and people want to talk about, you know, their new solar installation or um, have questions about land and how it might be able to use for clean energy purposes. I mean, just everybody knows somebody who's, who's participating in this space and is likely benefiting from it. Um, so the conversation just, it seems to be improving uh, year after year. And I really, I, I just see nothing but opportunity um, with the new people that we have and the returning um, individuals who, like I said, are returning with more seniority, with more leadership potential, um, which is only going to advance the conversation, um, I think, in the favor of clean energy. Yeah, ditto to everything that Betsy just said. Um, I, I think, you know, lobbying on and working on clean energy issues today um, has changed. I don't even know what the right analogy or adjective is. Um, since I started this work 12 years ago, um, you know, now there are so many incredible, exciting, awesome stories of clean energy to share with, you know, every legislator, all 170 of them um, in the House and Senate. Um, you know, we can take them, you know, when it's safe. Uh, to a brewery, you know, that has solar on it, like Mad Mole Brewing in Wilmington or Mother Earth Brewing in Kinston, um, you know, to small mom and pop, you know, restaurants to, you know, retail shops across the state, um, big box stores, you know, it, it's just, it's just so exciting um, to work in this space now and, 
you know, regardless of if you're from the East or the West or the triangle of the state, rural areas, you know, big cities, um, you know, there, there are such interesting, um, exciting stories happening, um, you know, and, and that innovation is being driven by so many outstanding, you know, business leaders across our state and, you know, Betsy and I, Betsy and I just love doing what we're doing and, you know, more people starting to work with us, you know, year after year. Yeah. And I think, um, I think we have to give a shout out to NCSEA and for as long as I can remember, uh, you all have done such a great job of tracking clean energy uh, down to the legislative district. Um, so it's always helpful for Julie and I and the rest of the lobbying team to be able to go meet with a legislator, whether they've been in office for 30 years or they're brand new and be able to walk in their office and say, let me tell you what's going on in your district, not just some you know big statistics about uh, renewable energy investment statewide, but we can actually, to Julie's point, point to a brewery, um, point to a retailer, point to a hotel right there in their district that's choosing um, to invest in these technologies. And it's amazing, the allies, um, I think we've brought in on clean energy just by somebody who knows somebody um, who is choosing to make these investments. And, and they're really the best lobbyists, right? If a friend of yours is doing something, you might be more willing to listen to them than uh, a brand new lobbyist in your office. So NCSEA does a phenomenal job of facilitating those conversations. And uh, I know our whole team always feels armed um, to to develop those relationships. And you can never go wrong when you get a chance to bring in craft breweries to the conversation of clean energy. I know our our lobbying team and our staff are looking forward to a post-COVID world where we're able to sit down with uh, friends at the legislature and partners and developers across the state over beers at some of our favorite breweries across the state. Well, I, for one, am very optimistic about the future of clean energy. I know there are, you know, lots of big picture conversations that are taking place and, you know, lots of very specific issues related to clean energy that I'm sure are going to pop up over the next year or so. So, Julie and Betsy, I know both of you have your work cut out for you over the next six to 12 months, but uh, I just wanted to thank both of you again for, for joining us today on the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast. I know our our listeners are going to be very excited to, to tune in and check this episode out. And uh, also thank you both for joining us as uh, speakers on our Making Energy Work webinar that we just had earlier this week. Um, so if you uh, are interested in checking out more of this conversation and hearing more from Julie and Betsy, you can go to NCSEA's website and find that webinar uh, recording on there as well. So Julie, thank you so much for joining us on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Thanks, Matt. Cheers to 2021. <laughs> And Betsy, thank you so much for being a first-time guest on the podcast, but not the last time. And we're looking forward to having you back again. Yeah, this was great. Thank you both very much. And that's a wrap on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. And the moment you've been waiting for this whole time, dad jokes. Why did the gardener plant a light bulb? He thought he would get a power plant.
And my key takeaway today is, while we didn't see any major shifts at the executive branch or legislature this year, clean energy is still top of mind moving forward. As polling has indicated, clean energy enjoys widespread bipartisan support across the state from voters, which has been reflected in the positions taken by legislators on both sides of the aisle. Under this similar makeup, our legislature has already prioritized clean energy over the past couple of years through the passage of bills like HB 589, which required the expansion of clean energy in the state through the procurement of multiple gigawatts of additional solar capacity in North Carolina. Even further, our current governor, who was just elected to a second term, instituted Executive Order 80 leading to the clean energy plan here in the state. As many listeners know, the stakeholder meetings around carbon policies and utility business model reform directed under the clean energy plan are coming to a close. So with the continuance of this administration, we're sure to see conversations carry on to future clean energy actions here in the state. Overall, I'm very optimistic about the prospect for clean energy growth in North Carolina after this year's election. Make sure to stay tuned to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast to stay up to date on all the latest in policy as we kick off the long legislative session starting in January of next year. And of course, let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout out at Matt Abel, M-A-T-T-A-B-E-L-E for future episode ideas, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 38 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See you all later.